Dave has taken us to God's decrees, God's eternal sovereign will, and I've been asked to speak about God's revealed will, the things that God has told us about himself. And I just want us to, to look at that together. I suppose that's the way it looked to me, the, the three bits of it. God's sovereign will that David's been telling us about, and that leads to worship. What God will do, and we just say, wow, you are God, and we worship him. And then there's God's revealed will, and that should lead to obedience. We should do what he tells us. And then there's the third, and I struggled with that, a title for this one, so I've made it up as God's attitude to me will. And that leads us to prayer, and it's what God will do for us in our lives. So I'm looking at the middle one, God's revealed will, what God wants us to do. And that's the answer, isn't it? It's found in the Word of God. Um, they reckon the Bible, and certainly in the Western world, is the, uh, the, most, the most published um, book of all time. And it sits in most people's houses, on a shelf or in a cupboard, and is never read. So everyone has a Bible, but nobody ever looks at it. If we want to know what God's will is, we need to get our Bibles out, and we need to look at it. And I would appeal for us all, as Christians, to make reading our Bibles part of our everyday lives. Um, no, you won't remember it every day. And some days you'll read stuff that won't make any sense to you. But that's, that's life, isn't it? We read God's Word, and as we read and absorb over the years, uh, it has a, a very positive influence on us. So let's make sure we read God's Word. And the reason is, because all Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If we want to know what God's will is and want to do it, then we must look into the Holy Scriptures, which are God-breathed. We've already met this um, verse this evening. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God has revealed some things to us. And if you think about it, if God hadn't revealed anything to us about himself and what he wants us to do, we would be completely ignorant. We'd never work it out. We might, we might reckon, that, reckon that the existence of a supreme being just from observations of, of creation, but we would be totally ignorant of anything that that being wanted us to know about ourselves or about him. So how can I know God's will? By reading the Bible day by day, and I commend that to you. The Bible, and this is how it is God's revealing God's will to us, it starts with the Holy Spirit who, who breathes his message to human beings who write it down. And so the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament writers wrote down what God had breathed on them. And that becomes the Bible. And then you and I read it. And we absorb it and we listen to what it says. And then we have a choice. We can either disobey it, ignore it, and we become worldly Christians or we're unbelievers, or we choose to obey it. And that's what committed Christians do. Now, I'm not suggesting that all of us will always get it right. You know as well as I do that we'll make mistakes, and there'll be times when we will get it wrong. But this is the principle that we do. So what's God done? God tells me what he wants me to do, and I have to do it. Very simple, isn't it? God has given us that ability to choose. David's been talking about the overriding principle of God's will. And we know that God's will will, will always be achieved. The big overriding principle of God's will, no matter what I do, I can't affect that. 
just as in the day when the Lord Jesus was on the earth, no matter what his disciples did or his enemies did, couldn't alter in any respect what God had decreed, the Lord Jesus was going to go to Calvary to bear the sin of the world. And the same with us. But he's given us an ability to choose. Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. And if you think about it, it's quite amazing. God who knows everything, who is perfect, who is holy, who is infinite, looks at to what to him must be tiny little creatures, more insignificant than little ant is to you and I. And he says, do you know what? I'll give you a choice. I want you to do this, but I'll let you not do it. I, I, don't, I want you not to do that, but I'll, I'll permit you to do it. That is quite staggering, if you think about it. But he wants us to align our will to his. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. We are to align our wills. I am to align my will to God. I'm a rebel. I like my own way. I like to do things my way. And then I discover that God says, actually, don't do that. And I've got to change my thinking. And I've got to align my will to what God tells me in his word. So God, is he in control? Well, there are two models that are often thrown at us. I'm going to suggest both are wrong. One model that comes across is a faithless one. There's a controlling God in this model. And in the words of the song, que sera, sera, what will be, will be. We, walk, we live according to a preordained script. What we do every day is what God has proposed in advance for us to do. We're not responsible for anything. It's all a big script and we're performing. The other end, we have the picture of an out-of-control God, like a big uncle in the sky who's watching these humans doing what they shouldn't be doing and who says, please don't do that. He's out of control, he's wringing his hands and he's really lost, lost the plot. Now in between those two ridiculous extremes comes what I think the Bible tells us. And it tells us about the God of the Bible who is sovereign, as David has already explained to us, and yet permits human action, who reveals his will to us and yet allows us to do otherwise. This is a God who's in control, don't forget. The, the nearest picture I can imagine is when you and I are looking after a toddler. And that toddler's running around the room or the house and thinks he or she is in control. And they can do certain things, but you know they're not. Because you've got your eye on them and you're not going to allow them to put the finger on the electricity uh, sockets. And you're not going to allow them to fall down the stairs. They think they're in control and they're running around doing what they want. But in fact, you're controlling them, you're watching them, you're pushing them in certain directions. And I think that's the nearest I can think of as to how God operates with us. He gives us ability to do certain things, but ultimately he remains in control. So God's will. God's revealed will, it seems to me, comes in three, three intensities, if you like. The first one is quite clear instructions on some subjects. If you want to know what, you, what God says about such a thing, you can give your Bible and verse. Look it up. And there it is. Very clear. The problem is doing it, not understanding what we should do. The second one is that there are instructions on attitudes and thinking. 
And they're a bit more difficult because we're not told exactly how to do it, we're just told the sort of area that we should be operating in. And then thirdly, God gives us some big principles that we put into practice, and they require a bit more thought, a bit more digging in the Bible to find out what those principles look like in our Christian lives. So first of all, let's look at where there are clear instructions. This struck me as a very obvious one. First Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How easy is that? And yet, I don't rejoice always. I'm a grumpy old man sometimes. And I don't pray continually. There are days when I don't pray. And I don't always give thanks, as Ruth will testify and so there's a very, very simple, straightforward um, instruction that I can't do <clears throat> every day. I try to do it, and some days I succeed in doing it, and some days, some days I succeed in doing some of it. It's hard to do it, but it's very, very simple what I should be doing. Here's another one that's easy to understand. Now, supposing David here owed me £2,000 and he wouldn't pay me back. Well, supposing Brian here had agreed with me to perform something for me and he wouldn't do it. What do I do about it? Go and see a solicitor? Take him to court? Make them? I'll get my money back somehow. I'll make him do what he's promised to do. <coughs> or maybe I should pray about it and see, Lord, shall I take him to court? Well, no. Neither of those two. There's the answer. Very, very simple. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more then the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling for those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court. Lawsuits, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have already been completely defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Now there's a, a very clear instruction. If that was true, what I just suggested, no, I don't take Dave to court and sue him for my £2,000. And no, I don't take Brian to court for an injunction to get him to do. What the Bible clearly says is I get wise people in the church and say, look, here's the case, can you have a word with them? And ultimately, if you don't pay me back, then the Lord says, well, suffer the loss then. But don't do this thing, because it will be wrong. And there's a good principle. There are sometimes things that, from a human point of view, look the obvious thing to do. And God says, no, don't do them. I don't want you to do that. Suffer the wrong rather than do it. And that's one of the obvious things. Sometimes, what we're told goes against society. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God tells us in his word that there are some things that if we do them, we do not qualify to be part of God's kingdom and God's people. And then he says, but of course, some of you were like that. Some of us were like that. But God has changed us 
He's saved us. He's justified us. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. And we are to live new lives, sanctified lives, which often will go against society. And sometimes things that we find seem unfair. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband does not divorce his wife. The Bible's quite clear on that. And it seems unfair, but what if? What if but what about? The Bible says don't do it. God doesn't want us to do certain things. And here's one of those things. <clears throat> and some things seem awfully narrow that God tells us. God tells us that death of one of the partners dissolves a marriage. And here Paul says, right at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. That's narrow, isn't it? Why not just say, her husband's died, she's now free to marry anyone she wishes, full stop. And it's not just a woman, of course, in this example it was, but it's all of us. But he doesn't, he narrows it. Because it's God's will, the disciples of the Lord Jesus should marry disciples of the Lord Jesus and serve together in churches of God. Seems narrow by the standards of our society. And then there's a verse that I think is very hard-hitting, which leads me into my, my second point. It's James chapter 4, verse 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. God says if you and I know what we ought to do and we, don't, and we fail to do it, it's sin and that takes us into James chapter 4, which I think is a good example of instruction on attitudes. And I'd just like to read James chapter 4 with you. If you want to follow it in your Bibles, I'm just going to read the 17 verses of James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with this world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows, hum- shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister to judge them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you? Who are you to judge your neighbour? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, for it is sin for them. So these now are a little bit broader. This is where we're told instructions on attitudes. James 4, the list of things that we've read that James tells us in that uh, chapter 4. That's God's will, God's revealed will for you and for me. For example, humble yourselves before God, don't slander each other, be careful how you make your plans. There's four, for example. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? There's quite a number of verses in the Bible that tell us about how dangerous our world is, and meaning world meaning the godless society that we live in, not the people, and not the beautiful planet that God has made, of course, but the, the godless society, and telling us don't love the world, don't be like the world, don't follow the world, don't conform to the world. But it doesn't tell us how to do it. This is something you and I have to work out in our own lives. We have to decide, because it's, it's almost impossible. So some people said, in that case, we'll go and live in a, a monastery, cut ourselves off and have nothing to do with the world. And other people say, well, you can't do that, so just give up, just go and get fully involved in the world. But somehow in the middle, we've got to decide, in living in this world, in rubbing shoulders with people in the world, <clears throat> being employed in the world, being part of this world, how we don't become so involved with the world that it destroys us and angers our God. And that's something you have to work out for yourself, and I've got to work out for myself. But it's real, and it's something that God instructs us to do. And then, in verse 13 to 15, we get this verse about um, boasting about tomorrow and making plans that leave God out of things. Listen, you say today or tomorrow we'll do this, we'll do that. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we live and do this or do that. It's arrogance on my part if I make definite plans and say, do you know, next week I'm going to do this. Next year I'm going to do this. Because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't even know I'm going to be here tomorrow, but neither do you. And this is pointing out to us that we need to have this attitude of... It is the Lord's will. Now, when I was growing up, it used to be common for Christians to stick the letters DV on the end of everything, and it made them as if they'd sort of, by sticking DV on the end of everything, you, you satisfied the scripture. DV is Latin for Deo Valenti, which means if the Lord wills. But sticking DV on the end of everything doesn't actually help. It's a mental attitude, isn't it, of saying to yourself, I'm, I'm going to go on, I'm making plans to go on holiday, if the Lord wills. I'm going to go there and do this, if the Lord wills. And it's a mental thing that recognise that sometimes the Lord might say, actually, no, I don't need to do that. And he may put blockages in our way. And if he does, my natural reaction is get furious about it and stamp my, my feet. And you say, no, that might be God saying, I don't want you to do that. Because sometimes some of these things may not be the Lord's will. And we need to be very careful. So there are some things where it's principles, it's attitudes, that we're told about, and we have to work those out in our lives. Then sometimes there are broader principles that God gives us to follow. So we've gone from very specific commands, which are easy to understand, but sometimes very difficult to put into practice, to attitudes, 
that affect our Christian lives. And now we're into much broader things, into principles. I'm just going to give you three of them. The first one is this. Jesus said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Put God first in your life. That's a principle. It doesn't tell you what to do when you leave this building and go home. It doesn't tell you what to do tomorrow morning when you wake up. It doesn't tell you anything like that, but it's a principle. And I suggest it's a really serious principle for us as Christians in uh, 2019. Put God's things first. If we put God's things first, there's the promise of Jesus. The other things, now you have to read Matthew 6 to discover what the other things were. But he's talking about, he'd been talking about clothing, he'd been talking about being provided for, the things that occupy us day after day. And we can spend so much time worrying about them. Um, does redundancy come in and work? Am I going to be okay? I don't feel too good. Or I'm going down to something really serious. We can worry ourselves to death over all sorts of things. And actually God says, no, put me first, put God first, and these other things will fall into place. Those of you who know, who know me, know I'm always banging on about this. Put God first in your life. It's the one decision that we'll never, ever regret. And one thing I will guarantee that I will regret are those times when I know I didn't put God first in my life. A second principle that I struggle with is this one. 1 Peter 1, 15, 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Who finds it easy to be holy? It's hard, isn't it? Holy really means other. God is holy because God is totally different from all of us. And we're told to be other, to be like God, to be holy. And yet, I'm a sinful human being living in a sinful environment, surrounded by sinful people. It is awfully hard to be holy in those sort of circumstances. And so this is a principle I have to work out in my life. And sometimes I fail, and sometimes I get close. And very, very occasionally I might just feel I've hit the mark, and then very quickly I lose it again. It's a principle that you and I have got to work out. We're living in a godless, unholy society, and we'll just be absorbed into it unless we make it a principle not to do it, not to allow that to affect us, not allow that to completely absorb us. And it's an ongoing thing. It's not the sort of thing you do one day when you're young and that's tick the box and you move on. This is a daily thing. We've got to be holy. We've got to turn away from those things that are displeasing to God and that make us dirty and unclean in his presence. And then the third principle Jesus enumerated in John chapter 4 is the principle of worship. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in, the, in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship. That's what we're designed for. God has designed you and me to worship. Everybody worships something. If you don't worship in religion, then you'll find other things in your life that will become the objects of your worship. And there are people who worship their families, and they worship their jobs, and they worship celebrities, and they worship football, and they worship all sorts of things because we're built, it's hardwired to worship. But we're told to worship in spirit and in truth. As individual Christians, that means an attitude day by day of bowing down before the Lord. Because that's what worship involves. At least 
mentally, if not physically, bowing down before the Lord and saying, wow, you are God, I am such a tiny little person, and you are almighty God of heaven. And we should do that day by day, just bowing before him. If you read the Bible, you find that God has collective principles. God brought the people out of Egypt that they may worship me. God wanted the people collectively to worship him, and he gave all sorts of rules and regulations as to how he was to be worshipped. Look it up, it's a principle that God wants worship, and he wants it on his terms, and he's not happy when we mess around and we do it a different way than the way he has told us to. So those are broad principles that require us to go away and do a lot of study in order to understand what they mean and how it works in practice. I couldn't go away without leaving you this verse. Where there is divine will, that will not happen. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 is a very difficult scripture to understand. I urge, you that, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. If this is one of his decrees that David was telling us about, then that leads us to universalism. Universalism is that doctrine that says ultimately everyone will be saved. God will ensure no matter what people think or do in their lives, ultimately every single person will be saved and will be in heaven with God. The Bible tells us that is not going to be the case. The Bible tells us that sadly there will be people who will not be saved. So what does it mean then? What does it mean that God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? Does it mean that here's an example of where God's sovereignty has, come, has failed? God has given us free will and we've run off with it and he's, he's said, oh, shouldn't have done that. Well, no, because God doesn't make mistakes. As David has said, God never makes a mistake. It's a problem verse. The only way I can reconcile it is that there are some areas where God has given us the ability to what am I call wriggle room. He's given us ability to do things and he's asked us not to do them. He's given us the ability not to do things and he's asked us to do them. And here's an example. God wants everyone to be saved. He's not going to force everyone to be saved. He's not going to make it one of his eternal decrees. Instead of which, he has decreed a lot of, to do with salvation. And it's, it's a difficult one because we know that the Bible teaches us that all those who God has given to the Lord Jesus will come to him. The Bible teaches us that when we're unsaved, we're actually spiritually dead. And we can't make decisions for ourselves anyway. So we need the Holy Spirit to enlighten us. So how do we reconcile that with a wish, a, a, a will of God, that all people should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? I haven't got a full answer to this. It's one of the, one of the puzzles that comes out of the Bible. But it shouldn't worry us because... If I could understand all of the Bible, then quite frankly, I'd be God. And I'm not. I'm very small. My understanding is very limited. And there are some things I simply don't understand. But the things that we do understand, that we've been told today, that God has eternal purposes that can never be undone, and that God has things for you and me to do, that he wants us to do, are the things that we need to take on board. Finally, God gives you and me the power to assert our own will, but not the right to do so, and there are consequences to what we do. 
May God bless his word to us.